This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. We're going to take a little walk down memory lane here, actually, casting your mind back to the 1980s here in Vancouver, before the days of Expo. What was Vancouver like back then? Before Skytrain, right? Before Canada Place, back when Falls Creek was really all about industry on both sides of the water. This city has seen a huge transformation in the last 30 years. Now we talk about being, oh, the most, one of the most livable places on earth. Look at all this development, looking condo living, all that kind of stuff. But how did we get here? Well, our next guest was one of the people who was really in the middle of all of that planning as Vancouver went through that change. Larry Beasley was the co-chief planner for the city of Vancouver for 15 years. He's got a new book out. It's called Vancouverism. It takes a look at the remarkable change of the city that so many of us now call home, uh, for better or for worse. And Larry is with us to talk more about this. Good morning. Morning. What is Vancouverism? Well, Vancouverism is the way that we decided in this city that we would build our city or transform our city back starting in the 70s and particularly after Expo 86 in a, in, a, in a concept that was quite different than cities all around us around the world and in North America. We said we would intensify, we would bring people back to live downtown, but we would do it at a, with amazing livability. We would add to park spaces, we would add amenities, we would, and we would go to alternative forms of transportation. Vancouverism, the Vancouver that we tried to create was what we felt would be the nature of cities in the future if they could be successful. You said we tried to create. So do you think we, did we hit the mark or did we miss it? You know, a city is always in a, in a stage of creation. I think we hit the mark very, very well with what we were working with, with what we knew, uh, and with the, the kind of marketplace we had and the interest of consumers that we had at that time, and we evolved that. Our very success has caused problems. And that's also the nature of cities. Mm-hmm. Cities are organic. You know, uh, you get fit and then you find out that you uh, you have some something you didn't even think about. And that's yeah. kind of what happens in cities as well. You use the marker of Expo 86 as kind of a before and after, which I think is perfect because anybody who lived here during that era knows it was a completely different place before from what came after? And why do you think that was? Well, you know, first is that marker resonates to people at a very personal level. It's one of those things, you know, everyone can tell you what they were doing when Expo started. So to give identity to this story, it was a good place to start. But more importantly, the city started to change Partly, Expo was a response to problems we had in our city. We were in an economic malaise before Mm -hmm. that. And partly because of Expo, as we became known to the world, and all of a sudden, a city that people hadn't even known about, they started saying, wow, this might be a good place to invest, to live, to want to be in, to visit. Do you think, so yeah, that was the moment then where people came to Vancouver and went, this is a nice place. And we who lived here were like, wow, people like us. Yeah, yeah. And... We realized we weren't prepared for that new kind of place in the world. You know, we were, we were kind of a provincial town. We were in the resource industry. It was a fine place, nice place to live. But, you know, we weren't really prepared. And, and so we had to transform. Not only that, as that resource industry fell apart uh, for us, 
we had to say what was going to be the future uh, economy of our city. And we realized it was going to be the ideas industries. You know, we're now a huge uh, filmmaking industry uh, uh, city. And so we said to ourselves, what does a city have to be if it's going to be that kind of place? And we realized it had to be a really high-quality place to live. Dig, did we say that to ourselves, Larry, or did this happen organically? No, well, actually, we quite um, explicitly had this discussion and debate. And I think it was because Expo 86 showed us that cities could be so different and so exciting. So as that was over, we said, well, now what's going to happen? Yeah, we and wanted more of that. We want more of that, but also, hey... If we're going to be an ideas economy, look what that brought to us. But what if we made the nature of it, the progressiveness of it, the positiveness of it, the social responsibility of it, the beauty of it, a part of the chemistry of the whole future city? That's true. I think what people thought of, what we saw at Expo 86 was how we wanted to be thought of moving forward. Yeah, and you'll recall, and you'll recall, I think you said you were in grade nine. I was in grade nine. I still have my Expo 86 pass. Yeah, and you'll you'll, you'll recall that Expo 86 was telling the world what all cities should be like. World in motion. Right. And we said, yes, that message resonates for us. That message is a really good way to get beyond the malaise that we had faced. People like uh, Grace McCarthy, who was a politician of the time, yes. she started this amazing host program to teach us how to host visitors. Right? I was saying that Airbnb before there was Airbnb. Yes, yeah. and 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 that evolved. And then we realized, well, there's more to it than just tourism. It's about how you live. And then as we moved into the 90s, we began to be conscious of an environmental agenda that in fact, we could not continue to sprawl out onto our farmland. We're one of the few places in the world protecting our farmland. So we didn't want to continue to sprawl. And we didn't want our downtown to be a dead place. You know, it's hard for people to remember that at six o'clock in this town, Everything rolled up. That's so true. You know? Now, 120,000 people are living here. They're here day and night. They look after their city. They do wonderful things. You'll see activities and programs going on. You know, I was walking uh, uh, about 10 o'clock last night because I live in the downtown. Hundreds and hundreds of people out enjoying the lovely evening and one another. That's not something you would have seen 25 years ago. No. And it's not something you see in cities all over North America. Really, Cities, most inner cities still, with all the efforts that have been going on in my generation, most cities in North America are pretty sleepy in their, in their core city in the evening. So what is it that we did that worked? Well, the main thing we did is that we invited people to come back and live here. When you live in a place, you're there day, day and night. Mm-hmm. You also you look after your city. You make sure it's a, it has the opportunities and the amenities and all of that you want. Second thing is we found a unique way, and I'm now out teaching other cities about this, to, to take the wealth of development and apply it to the public agenda, the public amenities, not just have developers make a lot of money and, and go off somewhere else. Yes, they made money. But great wealth was brought to invest in our city. You know, all the amenities that you think about in downtown Vancouver that Mm -hmm. our citizens are enjoying was delivered without increasing our taxes. Right. So that that, that a message then that resonates with other cities when you go there? Do they think that's possible? Well, definitely, because they're they're in a vice. On the one hand, citizens say, don't increase our taxes. On the other hand, citizens say, we want better amenities. We want more amenities. We want parks, community centers, childcare. You know, they want all the bells and whistles of modern living. 
and those are expensive. And we found a unique way to do that by having the developers, as they enjoy the right to develop, right. to also have to invest in our city, not just in their project, but in the whole city. We're talking about the Vancouver of the past and where that's going to lead us to the future. The book is called Vancouverism. It's written by Larry Beasley, the former co-chief planner for the city of Vancouver. And Larry, you were telling me in the break, I mean, you served seven different mayors. I did. That's a lot. So we're talking, what, Mayor Gordon Campbell, Mayor well, Philip it, Owen, Mayor Sam Sullivan, Mayor Larry Campbell. Like, how many are we well, going through here? Well, it even went back f- further than that. In fact, I don't know if I can even remember all the mayors that I served. <laughs> but what was interesting was that as we moved into the late 80s and early 90s, we had lots of debates about the future of our city. And we drew it with thousands of our citizens. And, you know, it was an extraordinary time of invention. But slowly the politics gelled around it. It didn't matter what political party you were from. Often when we got into the late 90s and into the turn of the century, political parties would say, we like what's happening with our planning of our city. Support it, support it, support it, move on to other issues. But would that happen now? Has it become too politicized? Like, could a planner today serve seven different mayors? Well, I like to believe that we have the kind of government which does have sustainability for its officials. It's harder now. The issues are big. The Mm -hmm. issues are huge. There is not that social consensus on how we should handle middle-income housing or homelessness, the kind of consensus that I enjoyed in the past. We spent millions of hours working with people to put together that consensus with tens of thousands of citizens. That isn't there. It needs to come back, I think, to our city because local government must be in a leadership role. What more needs to be done? Like, we've talked a lot about where Vancouver has come over the last 30 years, but what do we still need to do? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, uh, this middle in- uh, secure middle-income sector of housing has got to be uh, brought about. We've got to have all the governments working together, as they do in other cities. This is nonprofit homeownership, co-ops, uh, uh, secure rental rates, and those kind of things. It's going to be a public and private partnership. Second is we must deal with the issues of the downtown east side. Uh, The way we're handling mental illness and addictions is not working. And we had a huge uh, effort back in the 90s. I talk about it in my book. It should be an inspiration for another initiative. You're talking about when we were doing the four pillars approach. Four pillars approach. We call it the Vancouver Agreement. But also, we're facing some amazing things here in the future. We haven't even started thinking about what we could achieve through the sharing economy. You know, in Finland, Mm. they cut their living, they're starting to cut their living expenses by up to 30 percent by sharing of all the things that we individually like, buy, right? Like what? Well, like uh, lawnmowers and, uh, and, uh, and, and babysitting and all kinds of things that we could be helping one another. And that's got to come in. But even more importantly, we're going to move into a time in 20 years from now where, where we'll have autonomous driving happening. Is that going to overwhelm us with cars or... One scenario, if you do it a certain way, could mean less and less cars, which mean, in my book, I say up to 50% of the street space could be converted back to pedestrians and cycling and people and all kinds of wonderful things. This is why the planners, the government, the creative people of the city, and not just in government, in the private sector, have to have a forward-looking approach. You talked about planning then. When you were doing that job, what about transportation? How much was uh, the focus was on that as well? Because clearly we've underplanned for that, right? It's much more popular than planners could have anticipated. Well, you know, we went through a period. Right right now, 
our, as you know, I'm on the board of TransLink. Right yeah. now, our transit system is the fastest growing ridership in all of North America. The reason for that is we reorganize the city and even in the suburban town centers so that it's much more uh, sensible and logical and economic for people to use transit. Well, we also, you've got to recall, had a period of over a decade where we were not investing in transit mm-hmm. and we got very far behind. Thank goodness in recent years, governments and, and funders have come back and said yes. So we are now expanding the transit system quite dramatically. But Hundreds of buses. But we're still behind and we have to get ahead of it. How do we do that? Is that a huge investment? It is a huge investment. But you could look at it this way. If you just look at the street system and the investment we make every day in the street system, we've got to make that same kind of investment in our public transit system. We've got to find new funding sources. We've got to find new ways to, um, to move people around. We've got to take advantage of new technologies, well, all of those things. You talk about investment in the street system. You should explain that to people then because people just assume the roads are the roads. I don't the, think they see that investment. They don't, but it costs millions and millions and millions of dollars to keep that road system functional, adequate, to, keep, to expand that system when you have to expand it, uh, to do all the things to accommodate Park parking is, costs something like forty five to fifty thousand dollars a stall to build underground. We're finding we don't need that kind of parking anymore in downtown Vancouver. We're finding most parking structures underneath are about half empty most of the time. So that kind of money mm. needs to be put into a transit system which could bring us to a level that you would see in the Nordic countries or Northern Europe or, or even uh, uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, where people can travel very easily. Are we asking those kinds of questions, though, Larry, or is it too now political? Well, I think, I think that certainly the leadership of TransLink is asking those kind of questions. As a matter of fact, they're doing a new 30-year plan, yes, visioning for the future. Yeah. And it, I was so happy as a board member to see that they've put their focus on what are the real questions of what, what is the best thinking in the world about moving around in the future. And you know what? That's what my book was about. My book was about a group of courageous people when people said no one wants to live downtown, no one will get out of their car, no one will, will you know, all these children will never want to live downtown. And we said, no, we think there is a better way to do this. You talked about children living downtown, right? Because now we need more elementary schools. And who would have thought that yeah. 20, 30 years ago that you'd have to build elementary schools in, in downtown Vancouver? And you mentioned not every city does that. Not every city actually welcomes that. No, as a matter of fact, most North American cities either are ambivalent about children in the downtown or... Or uh, I think it was about a decade ago that Toronto passed a motion that they wouldn't be accommodating children downtown. Now, I think that's changed through Mm -hmm. the more recent years. But we did the opposite. You know, what we said is, no, we want 25% of all the new housing to specifically accommodate families with children. It needed to be designed to do that. It needed the public amenities, it needed the child care, it needed safety. Why is that important? Why have kids? Because most of the workers downtown have kids. And if you want people to live close to their jobs, you've got to have housing that suits them. You know, you've got to have a diversity of sizes of housings. We still do not Not have... Not just condos that are 600 square feet and less. Exactly. (laughs) We've got to have that diversity of size. We also have to have... Um, much more attention to securing the affordability at various levels. In my day, we had a crisis of low-income people. And so we put all of our energy into housing low-income people. Now, and this changed about 
about 2010, we have a crisis of middle-income people yeah. losing, losing so you know, uh, their way. And so now we have to have a strategy for middle-income people. We're starting to see a conversation in our community, but it's not yet gelled in the kind of strategy that will make this happen. And that's what was so amazing about uh, 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 Expo 86 and right after that was that we acted. We, we dreamed. Yeah. We convened everyone. We decided. And we acted. This has been a fascinating walk down memory lane, Larry. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Larry Beasley is the former co-chief planner for the city of Vancouver. The book is called Vancouverism. You should definitely check that out. If you want to weigh in, you can email me as well. Simi at cknw.com or use our buzz line 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899.